Our scripture reading this morning comes from the sixth chapter of Deuteronomy, reading verses 1 through 9. Deuteronomy 6, beginning at verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you're going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son, and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and all his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes." You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O Lord, we thank you for the guidance you gave to Israel of old. And we thank you for the word you provided to your disciples through the lips of our Lord Jesus himself. And we thank you for the instruction you've granted your saints of old through the centuries that you have not left us alone and without a guide, that your word is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. And so we pray that you would shine. We pray that you would speak. We pray that you would illumine. We pray that you would testify. We pray that you would cast out the darkness of our weary, sinful souls. We pray that you would cast light upon Jesus and his gospel, for it's in his strong name that we do pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, where to begin? In medical school, you begin with do no harm. In travel, you begin with don't buy the middle seat. In the Boy Scouts, you begin with be prepared. In different spheres of life, you begin in different places. And it's interesting to ask where Moses begins here in Deuteronomy 6. He is winding up. And if you think I might preach for a while, you could sit with this one. This is a sermon that's going to run 20 chapters. Having just rattled off the Ten Commandments yet again in Deuteronomy 5, Having recited the law of the Lord that is our guide, our canon, and our rule, Moses now begins to preach and to testify, to speak on God's behalf to Israel at a momentous occasion as they're about to go from being wayward sons and daughters journeying in the middle of a wilderness, possessing nothing and being constantly under threat, strengthened only by God's word and promise, to being people like you and me, living in a land of plenty, leading lives of remarkable security, wealth, and excess, suffering very different problems and challenges, no longer the want, no longer the worry 
of the migrant, the sojourner, the child in exile, but finding oneself possessing cisterns that one did not dig, sitting behind walls that one did not build, possessing storehouses of grain that one did not, in fact, sow or harvest. And so we come to a remarkable occasion where Moses begins. And what we see here twice in this remarkable passage is that Moses begins with what may seem a very strange command and call in verse 3 and again in verse 4. This is a famous passage. This is perhaps the single most recited text of the entire Old Testament amongst Jews to this day and Christians ever since the coming of Christ, known so often as the great Shema of Israel. That word Shema or hear appears so famously in verse 3 and again in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all you have. And there are so many profound things to be said there, and we've explored this before. What it says of God, that God is one, that God is unique, that God is in a class by Himself. So you do well to pay attention and be alert. What it says of us, that we're to love God with everything, heart, soul, and strength. As Jesus will later unpack, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everything we possess, every aspect of us, every nook and cranny of yourself is meant to be given in God with love. But there's something that we do well not to run past. Moses doesn't first say God is one, nor does he say that you love God with everything you've got. He begins by saying, hear. Hear. Listen. Attend with your ear to the word of the Lord. Hear, O Israel, this is who God is. Hear, O Israel, this is what you live for. And we see, of course, that Moses accents the importance of listening or attending to God's Word because God's Word throughout the Scriptures plays such a powerful role in giving life. We see in Genesis 1 that God has given life to all things of all manner by speaking. That God said, let there be, and it was. That God said, let there be, and it was. Time and again, the word of the Lord effectively gives life and beauty and goodness to all that is, and God says that it's good. We see in the Psalms that the word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, that the word illumines our way and renews our soul. We see in the gospel accounts that the Word was in the beginning with God and was God, and that the Word is the Word that lights up the world. And we see the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 reminding us that the same Word that called light out of darkness has now shone in Jesus Christ such that we see the glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ, such that we in Him are a new creation reconciled unto God and given that word as ministers and ambassadors of reconciliation, fellow workers with God on His behalf. The word has power and the word is beautiful and the word is true. And so Moses begins with the simple call to hear. And it was 500 years ago as we Mark this month, the occasion of the beginnings of the Protestant Reformation, when the significance of hearing was remembered and not forgotten. When Luther 
and Zwingli and Bootser and Calvin and Cranmer and others were startled yet again by the simple importance of attending to God's Word in worship together, in personal devotion and prayer, in our public lives and in our private piety of always remembering to begin with that simple call to hear, O Israel, to listen, O church, to attend to the life-giving Word of the Lord. And as you're paying attention this month, to their witness, their testimony, the way in which they serve as fathers and mothers in the faith who remind us of the scriptural wisdom God has for us, I wanted to draw your attention to one oft-forgotten statement from the Reformation that elaborates on what we see here in Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 9. Luther gets a lot of love this month. I've been going around to a number of different churches and schools as people mark this 500th anniversary, and Luther gets a lot of love. He's the elder brother. He's flamboyant. He's boisterous. He's the life of the party. Love him. Hate him. You've you've got to have an opinion about Luther, and so he's being talked about much. And, of course, his graffiti is what we are marking this year as he tacked a bunch of theses upon a door in the town square. But it's worth noting that the Reformation wasn't simply a moment of great figures, of giants of the faith, but also of the forgotten witness of the saints. That there were remarkable figures with brilliant insight and godly eloquence like Luther and Calvin, but there also were remarkable benefactors who funded the missionary message going out far and wide. There also were Saints and seminarians who went out to die quickly as martyrs for the evangelical gospel. There also were men and women who in the daily grind of life turned again and again to the life-giving word of God and celebrated in praise the fully sufficient grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And not only were there the great churches of Wittenberg or Geneva, but there were the forgotten churches like that of Bern. And I want to introduce you to a statement from what is one of the very first confessions of faith in an off-forgotten city, something off the beaten path, a little bit off the interstate. And I hope that it might prompt and encourage you to think about the significance of what we read here in Deuteronomy 6 and of what this church in Bern saw as significant for their own lives and what I suspect continues to be a challenge for you and for me. In the year 1528, just nine years after Luther got the party started, this church professed its faith and they offered what are called the Ten Theses of Bern. You can look them up on the web. A simple Google search will get you to all ten. Not right now, please. But I simply want to reflect on the very first statement. It is my Absolute favorite sentence from the entire 16th century. The Holy Christian Church, whose only head is Jesus Christ, is born of the Word of God, abides in the same, and does not listen to the voice of a stranger. I don't think we could find a better exposition of Deuteronomy 6 here than that. The Holy Christian Church, whose only head is Jesus Christ, is born of the Word of God, abides in the same, and does not listen to the voice of a stranger. 
I think there's three things, each connected to facets of this and other passages that are worth our attention there. Let's walk through it briefly and hopefully see its significance for our many struggles and challenges and hopefully see its promise for our witness and our mission in days to come. The Holy Christian Church has a head, one head. Its only head is the Lord Jesus Christ. We tend to think of Jesus and His Lordship as something that was remarkable, that was sufficient, that was final. And there are good reasons that we tend to linger in the past tense. We read texts like the Epistle to the Hebrews, where Jesus once for all offered up a sacrifice such that no more is needed. Unlike every other priest, having made propitiation for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. And so we celebrate the fact that one of the great words of the cross is the word, it is finished. And of course, the Israelites would have been able to understand this in the time of Deuteronomy 6. They are a people to whom God can say, at the very beginning of Exodus 20, before says anything else, I am the Lord of your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. They knew the finality of God's having brought them out of death in Egypt, out of oppression under Pharaoh, out of hopelessness in that place. And we, this side of the coming of Christ, this side of His passion, this side of His resurrection and ascension on high, we know the finality and the completion of that. But Deuteronomy reminds us that there is still more. And Hebrews reminded us that there is yet further grace from Jesus, that though He has accomplished His atoning work once for all, He continues to reign and to rule. And so we celebrate in that great benediction of Hebrews 13.20 that He is the great shepherd of the sheep. Or as Peter will say in 1 Peter 2.23-25, He is not only the shepherd or pastor, but also the overseer of our souls. This is why in the Reformed Church, the very first statement we make when we speak of how we govern ourselves, of what we call our polity, is always a statement neither of the congregant nor of the elder but of the Christ who we so easily forget that the Lord of the church is Jesus Christ. And we do well, Christians, to remember that as glorious as is the past tense of the atoning work of Christ, as life-giving as is the future tense of His return in glory, that the Bible speaks also of the present tense of the gospel, that Jesus is our prophet and our priest and our king that He is this very day speaking His life-giving Word such that it's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So Moses could remind them in the time of Deuteronomy that today you should hear the Word of the Lord. So in that day, the author to the Hebrews could say, as often as it is called today, you shall seek your rest in Him. And this very morning, I can remind you that the Holy Christian Church has but one head this very day, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has not abandoned us, who has not retired into seclusion, who has not left public life, who is imperceptible and invisible to our sight, 
but who has not abandoned his sheep, but has promised that he will guard us and keep us and present us complete to the Father in glory. There's a second statement we see that reminds us of this remarkable text from Deuteronomy 6. The Holy Christian Church is born of the Word of God and abides in the same. I suspect we probably, we understand that we're born of the Word of God. That the Word of God, the witness of the prophets and the apostles, the testimony to Christ and His gospel, this is that which has power and force and which draws us out from darkness into light. Which renews us by His Spirit's power such that we go from death to life. From being dead in sins and guilt to being alive to God in Christ. We celebrate that. We mark that with every baptism, do we not? The converting power of the Word of God, of the Gospel message. But it's crucial to note that the Word continues and the Word witnesses day after day such that the man and the woman of God is equipped and matured, built up to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Deuteronomy 6 is a word not to the pagan. It's a word not to the uninitiated. It's a word to the people of God, to the Israel of God. It's a word to the church. The epistle to the Hebrews. A word not to the unconverted, not to the unaware seeker, but to those in the fold. What we see again and again is that God's life-giving Word not only starts the Christian life, but sustains the Christian life. That we find not only our conversion, but our continuing in this journey of faith with Jesus Christ in the power and effectiveness of His Word. We see this heralded in one of the favorite passages of Luther, Calvin, and the others. Romans 1, 16 and 17, we tend to focus on the final portion of that text, that the just shall live by faith, a remarkable hallmark of Reformation Protestantism. That it's not on our works or their merits that we stand before God, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And that's true and glorious. But they also celebrated the first statement in Romans 1, 16, that Paul and Luther... And hopefully you and I could say that we are not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. He doesn't say that it's the power of God for conversion. He doesn't say it's the power of God for the pagan to become a Christian. He doesn't say it's the power of God for the dead to come to life. He says not only all of those glorious and necessary things, but much more broadly, it is the power of God for salvation. Beginning unto end. Alpha to omega. Birth unto death. That God's Word is meant to sustain us. And so it's not for nothing that in the church we not only point to that remarkable witness of baptism where we see that God raises us to life and it's not of our doing but of His grace. But we also mark that other great sacrament, that we come to a table, that we are fed, that we are nourished, that there is grace evermore, 
always and again provided by Jesus. And perhaps that most remarkable of statements in the Reformation was the upending of their thought about the sacraments of the church. The remarkable word that the priest could actually say to the congregation sitting at the table that these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Not that these are some occasion where we offer something unto God to please God, to placate Him, to put away His wrath for the next day or week, but rather that this is a sign of His still further abundant grace. Of His grace and mercy that is new every morning. And if we're honest, I think that we need each and every day. You know, some of you have heard me mention before my experience as a runner in track in high school. I ran the 4x400 relay, the last event of the evening. And in South Florida, it was beautiful because you'd often catch the sunset and the lights of the stadium would be coming on. And it was the final event of any meet and oftentimes the, the fate of all the teams involved hung on that race and its results. And as an adrenaline junkie, that did it for me. But I not only enjoyed that race so very much, but I also found anxiety coming from that race more than any other. You see, I had, I had grown up playing team sports, soccer, and then lots and lots of basketball. And then, in my final year of school, tried out track and found myself on this relay team. And if you don't know, the 4x400 relay is an event where each person, each man or woman, runs one lap around the track and then passes the hot potato on to the next team member. And you're running fast and there is no time to pause. And every week, before each and every meet, ten minutes before the race... I would go through the standard preparation of throwing up. Anxiety would lead such that I would run off to a porta potty somewhere in some hot, humid Florida field, and I would vomit, and I would go and run, and I would euphorically pass the baton to the next person. I ran the third leg of the race, and you would sit there, hand, palm, sweating. The good news would be that the person in front of you has got a lead and it's just your job to keep it. The bad news would be that somehow they failed and you've got to make up for that. There's not really terribly good news on either side, frankly, in my opinion. But what struck me as so anxiety-inducing was that for that 50-ish seconds, no one can help. You're completely on your own. And as someone who had always played team sports, I was struck by the remarkable difference. Even though it sounds like a team sport or relay, it's not. It's sequential, individual performance. For that 50 seconds, everyone just stares. You simply run. No one can help you. Mom can't help you. Your coach can't help you. The teammates can't help you. You stand or fall based on your own strength and performance. And I found that remarkably isolating and overwhelming and anxiety-inducing. And thus, the vomit. And I suspect that a lot of us look at the Christian life this way. Jesus ran that lap. He got a good lead. I mean, it was was beautiful. The apostles started slow, and frankly, it looked like they might have pulled a muscle. But, But they worked it out, and they finished strong and in stride. My goodness, Luther, we're still talking 500 years later. 
those men and women, those great saints of the Reformation, those who've gone before you, the old pastor everyone talks about as being so saintly, the the grandmother, the teacher, the person who discipled you, who seemed to run such a good race, and now it's in your hand. Now it's in your hand. And eyes are upon you, and the dead are watching, and worse, God too. And you need to not blow it. And that can be isolating. That can be constricting. That can be anxiety-inducing. And we do not perform well when we are anxious. We do not think of others when we're anxious. We do not seek to sacrifice for the betterment of our neighbor when we're anxious. Now our world constricts. Our vision, our dreams, our mission, our imagination, our hope, it shrinks and shrivels. What a reminder to hear that we are not abandoned, that we are not forsaken. That with every day as we can be commanded to again hear the word of the Lord, we are reminded that God still speaks. That He has not left us, that He's not abandoned us, that He has not gone silent, He's not gone quiet like a submarine in foreign territory, but rather that He speaks, and thus His Word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It not only draws us from death into life, but it cuts to the quick, separating soul and spirit. And so for you and for me, in times that seem overwhelming, in the face of temptations that seem completely irresistible, in situations that seem so overwhelming, we have hope because we are not alone, because He is not silent, because the same power that brought this world into being, the same power that brought you, a sinner, from darkness into life, is now committed to changing you, to transforming you, to sustaining you, and to sending you on your way. Paul celebrates this in Romans 8, that great chapter most of us have heard at someone's graveside or bedside, that we can't be separated from the love of God in Christ. Well, there's also that remarkable word in Romans 8.32, that he who did not spare his own son, but freely offered him up on our behalf, how will he not also with him give us all other things? If Jesus has been offered up, if the Father's most prized and beloved possession has been given freely on our behalf, Do we really think, do we really think He won't care for our everyday needs? If the bread of heaven has been offered, do we really worry that we'll be left to fend for daily bread? If the cup of salvation has been poured out for us, do we really think that we've got to go find our own cisterns, broken cisterns, to satisfy our thirst? We're reminded that God's Word that with such power in the beginning gave life, is committed to sustaining and growing and maturing and strengthening and sending us in that life to serve others. There's a third statement here that also reminds us of what's said here. That the Holy Christian Church, whose only head is Jesus Christ, is born of the Word of God, abides in the same, and lastly, does not listen to the voice of a stranger. And there are a lot of strangers, aren't there? But the catch with the stranger is the stranger is not always who you might think. Luther, of course, saw the stranger in their voice in the form of religion. 
man-made legalism, human traditions that were built upon the Word of God and passed off as if they were of divine mandate, placing burdens upon simple men and women seeking to follow God and to trust Christ. We, in our own day, can perhaps point, identifying the voice of the stranger we could think this week, the thoroughly depressing news of a white nationalist speaking in our own state, drawing attention, proclaiming a a message of abject hatred. We could point to Hollywood, the exaltation of all sorts of debaucherous excess. We could point to Madison Avenue, the cultivation of consumeristic excess, the the notion that we will never be complete, we will never have enough, we always need more, and perhaps you should go into debt to get it. There are many strange voices out there that would lead us away from the faith, hope, and love that mark Christ's kingdom. And it's frankly rather easy sometimes to observe them all around in their grotesqueness. But do we have the courage to hear again Not just the reminder that we would stiff-arm the spiritual evils that would lead us away, that we would, with Paul's words of Romans 12-2, not be conformed to the patterns of this world. Do we have the courage to hear again this day, to commend again this day to our children and to our children's children the word of the Lord, that we too might be cut to the quick, that we too might be reformed as, as Glenn prayed that we too might be renewed, that the Word would cut ever so deeply our soul and spirit. Because Paul doesn't simply say, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but he goes on to say, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Moses knew in Deuteronomy 6. Paul knew in first century Rome. Luther and others knew in the 16th century in Europe. And I think we do well to know today, here and now, that the status quo is not acceptable. That God is not interested in saving and leaving us alone. That Jesus will get all up in our business. That He gives Himself that He might glorify you in and through His grace. That He speaks His Word not only to bring you from death to life, but actually to maturity and to fullness that you might find blessedness in the kingdom of God. Not just neutrality or ambivalence. That the gospel is not simply the word that we go from hell and judgment to neutrality, but that we're adopted into the family. We're drawn up by the loving arms of our Father. And that He does discipline and speak and guide and grow us so that we grow up mature in Christ so that we grow up to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Him who is Himself the man of heaven. Do we have the courage, again this day, not to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, not to seek to merit God's favor and love, not to seek to impress people watching, whether in the world, the neighborhood, or in the pew next to you? Do we have the courage again to hear to hear with openness and teachableness, to hear with expectancy and anticipation, to hear knowing 
that God means to change you this very day. That God's Word means to provoke you, to prompt you, to mortify that which is still sinful, to vivify and bring anew that which would be life-giving, that which would be true and good and beautiful. That's why Moses here not only reminds us that God is one and that we're to love Him with everything, but in the verses that follow, verses 6-9, to we are to create a habitat, a culture, a life together as we're on our way, as we're at home, as we're rising and as we're laying down as we think about our clothing, our interior design, every facet of our space and time, that we are to do so in ways that provoke us and prompt us to return again and again to His Word because there is still more grace to be found there. There is still more hope to be had. There is still more Jesus to be given. That having finally atoned for your sins, how will He not also deliver you again and again and more and more from the power of those sins. And so I hope this morning you might join me in listening not just to the saints of the 16th century, not just to those feeble men and women who sought a little more concertedly, a little more diligently to return to what God's Word taught, Not just with those Israelites who faltered and stumbled and sought to turn in faith to God, but that you and I with Jesus, with Jesus who puts His name upon you, with Jesus into whom you have been baptized, with Jesus who has borne your griefs and who now sits in glory and you too in the heavenly places, that you and I with Him might seek to listen might seek to hear, might seek again to heed God's Word, that we would be comforted and challenged, that we might be changed and conformed, that we might be strengthened and sent, that we might be the people of God, that we might be able to say that we are His people even as He is our God, His great covenant promise that we learn of in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 and 37, that God is not simply interested in birthing you anew and abandoning you like a child at the hospital, but that God is interested in caring and sustaining and strengthening and educating and growing you that you would be mature, that you would be well-pleasing, that you would be beloved and that you might be a gift to those around you, pointing them unto the one who has given you life and grown that life in you. Let's pray and ask that God would do that for each of us. Lord, we do thank you for your love and grace. We celebrate it, and we pray that you might renew us in it now. In Jesus' name, amen.